Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Trachonitis, and Licinius, a tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well... To say that he had big shoes to fill is an understatement. He believed, no, he had faith that the man who he was related to was not simply a man, but God himself. And here he was preparing for the duties set out before him. He would need to be a man of great conviction to inspire the people to play his part in bringing about the kingdom. There were questions about him, though questions about his lineage, and also something odd had happened with his name. That's right. Caesar Augustus had once been simply Gaius Octavius, 
grandnephew to the god of the people of Rome, Julius Caesar. But the name Octavius, it wasn't going to do for a man in his position. He was heir to the throne, and in that sense, he was the son of the god of Rome. He was the Caesar now, and so he changed his name to Augustus, meaning majestic, and it worked. The people worshipped their new emperor as they had the last, and why would they not? Augustus had brought peace all across the land. Yes, it was peace by the sword, but it was peace nonetheless, and by the sword, the brutal might of Rome spread across the known world. Augustus was truly majestic. In fact, his fame was so great that it was believed that he, as divine regent of the throne, was the son of the great god Apollo. Caesar Augustus, son of God. When your town, your city, your country was brought under the peace of Rome, or the Pax Romana, these were the words that were posted for everyone to see. Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. And there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Your new Lord and God has expanded his kingdom, and you are now his subjects. This declaration, this heralding of the kingdom of Caesar, had a name. Gospel. Good news. The good news being that you are now part of Rome. Caesar is Lord, and you are now his people. He has saved you, and he is the only one who can save you. But what did the salvation of Caesar look like? Well, it was easy. You kept your land, you kept your customs, you can even keep your religions, as long as it doesn't interfere with Caesar. And as your pledge to Augustus, all you had to do was make a simple sacrifice and declare Caesar is Lord. But this didn't simply mean that Caesar was your king. What it meant was all that had come to be believed about him, that Caesar, by divine installment, was the Son of God, that he was the highest authority above all others, that your country, your culture, your religion, all of it, your entire life, was in submission to him and his rule. This continued on with the Caesars down through history, all the way to the fall of the Roman Empire. And in the case of the Jews, through many ups and downs, they had secured their place as a nation within the Roman Empire. However, they were not above the rules of the empire. Herod the Great, not even a Jew by birth, had been placed as king over the Jews. Knowing that he must keep the peace of Rome at all costs, he gave them something. He built them a temple. However, by the time of his death, things had gone awry. His family was in shambles. He had gone crazy. And in his craze, he decided to split up the Jewish kingdom. An agreement was made with the Roman governor over him, Pontius Pilate, that the kingdom could be split among his heirs with a caveat. There's always a catch. See, Rome would let you keep your place in the empire and keep yourself as a nation. However, if there was no ruler, then there was no nation. Because Herod the Great split his kingdom among his heirs, Rome decided that the heirs would no longer be kings or monarchs, They were rulers of a fourth level called tetrarchs. And because the monarchy was broken, then they would have no heirs to their kingdoms. When they died, their dominion, their little province, would be subsumed into the Roman Empire. The Jews would cease to be Jews. They would simply become Romans. 
To keep the peace in Judea, Herod the Great and his Tetrarch heirs would work with a religious ruling body among the Jews called the Sanhedrin in order to protect their place and their nation at all costs. And secretly, they wished to be free of the yoke of the Caesars, but in action, they were in the pocket of Rome. The Sanhedrin would appoint a new high priest to serve the people in the temple built by a Roman king. When the high priest did not serve the interests of the peace of Rome, they would assign another and another and another until at long last they had two who would submit themselves to the cause of peace, the peace which Caesar Augustus had fought so hard to create, the peace which his heir Tiberius, his governor Pontius Pilate, and the whole Jewish ruling class, along with the religious elites, were now now tasked with keeping a peace that would be threatened by the proclamation of a different kingdom with a different gospel and a different king. Let's pray. Lord of all, we come to you hopeful today. We come to you at the turn of another year. Your advent marks our very days as we step into the year of our Lord 2023 today. And how quickly we forget when the days are busy and the works you've prepared are hard, that you indeed are Lord. That you are king, not only over our hearts, not only over our affections, but over all things. May we seek to live this coming year in full submission to you. Lord God, we come to you humbled. We come to you knowing that we, like John, are unworthy to even stoop and loose your sandals. And yet we come to you boldly and dwelt by your Holy Spirit, approaching the throne of the Almighty, not by our own merits, but only by that which we've received by you on your account. In the face of so many false saviors, hearing many claims of salvation, we cling tight to the only true good news, the good news of your kingdom and your glory. Meet your people here today as we seek to understand your words that you have so graciously given to us. Convict us of sin, encourage the downtrodden, and enliven your spirit within us. Christ, your judgment is clear and true. You baptize with fire. The truth will out in all our lives. Reveal to us now what you already know is true about us. Let your, we- your word pierce between bone and marrow and convict our hearts. Bring us evermore into your likeness, your image. It is in the powerful, majestic, mighty, and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So we jump into our passage today. Luke 3, 1 through 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And I wanted us to have a sense of how impactful and how important the context of this passage truly is. See, Luke is a very detailed writer, if you haven't noticed. He even says so in his introduction. Luke's desire here is to give a true and accurate account of the things that have happened concerning Jesus Christ. And he does so across multiple books. It's important to remember this, that Luke and the book of Acts originally came together as a set. And so 
all of this historical backdrop is important. It's vital to our understanding. Luke is telling his readers, you are here. It's like a map that you used to see at those ancient temples, you know, the ones that we used to visit as kids called shopping malls. They don't exist anymore, so a lot of people may not be familiar with that, but that's what it's like. It's like a map pointing to, to say, this is where we are. He gives all these fine details about the setting, the timing, and place, so that we, his readers, uh, but particularly his original readers, in that very first century, would know exactly when these things happen. So our passage starts with a series of names. He establishes which Caesar it is, who the governor is, who these tetrarchs are, and so on. This gives us the political context of the passage, and he gives us the names of these two high priests. This gives us the religious context of the passage. Now for us, we have to research or get a crash course on the Roman Empire in a sermon intro to understand what's going on here. But the original readers, they would have understood two things from this passage. First, what point in history they were at. And second, the relationship between Rome and the Jews. See, this was a time of religious corruption for the Jews. They were completely intertwined with Rome at this point. The irony of all of this is that as our passages leading up to this point have shown us, the Jewish people, including the religious elite, are expecting a Messiah to show up at any moment now. Prophecy after prophecy was pointing to this moment in history for the kingdom of God to come crashing through into their reality. And yet, these same elites show utter submission to Caesar as their highest authority. So Luke wants us to know all of this. Let's pick things back up in verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, we've already met John. We've already met Zechariah. We know that John was called to be the forerunner of the Messiah, but the people don't know this. And what's interesting here is that we might be tempted, if we've been in church for a while, to assume that this word that came to John in the wilderness would be the same word, logos, that we know from Greek. If We've grown up in the church and heard that before, but that's not the case. It's actually a different word, rhema, which really has this meaning of a message or a prophecy. And this is our first clue that Luke is trying to draw some distinctions here. The religious leaders of the Jewish people are in the pockets of Rome. If Rome doesn't like what you're saying, then here's your new message. This is what you proclaim. Yet here with John, what is the source of his word, his proclamation? It's not the word of Rome. It's not the word of the Sanhedrin. It's a word from God himself. And this word isn't residing in the temple. It's in the, it's in the wild. Verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is on the move. God has called his prophet, the last of the prophets before the kingdom, as we've learned over the past few weeks, and his prophet is doing the work he was called to do. Not only this, but we begin, we begin to see what the word actually is. He is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We See this kind of language echoed and amplified in the ministry of Christ in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus says to repent and believe 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the first big tip of the hat to what John is doing here. So we have the setting of John's message here. We have the group of Jews who were meant to lead the people of God, meant to be the messengers of God. And what had become? What had they become? They become messengers of Rome. And we have John, a true messenger of God, proclaiming not the will of Rome, but of God himself. There is a more defined purpose behind John's message. But what is that? So, the purpose of John's message here. Luke lines that out in no uncertain terms here in our next verse. As it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall, and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, Luke quotes Isaiah 40 here, but this isn't just some reference to wow the reader with how a prophecy came true. They're not arbitrary things. It's significant that John is in the wilderness yet, but what he's doing and how that points to what Isaiah is foretelling is even more significant. Luke uses this passage to define what John is doing. He is preparing the way of the Lord. That is preparing the way of the promised Messiah. So the man in the desert with the true message from God is saying, it's time. Prepare yourselves. Messiah is coming. And this makes sense in the context of the Isaiah passage as well. This passage, it's a prologue to a prophecy, not just of deliverance from an enemy, but of ultimate salvation. So it's as if Luke is saying, hey, this John guy, he's the prologue. Look what's going to happen next. Let's not lose sight of something that's incredible here. It's not as if Luke is just writing this and trying to find ways to make one thing fit with another to make a spicy story. No, the God of heaven and earth ordained all of this to happen. And he did so in just such a way that hundreds of years before John even came onto the scene, this specific prophecy would be written down. And he ordained and orchestrated generation after generation all the way to John so that this prophecy would be fulfilled by the work he did. And in the end, it was he, God himself, who gave the very words to John, the very message to be preached by John to the people before Christ came on the scene, preparing the hearts of many to repent, be forgiven, and become sons of God. I just don't want us to forget that. So the purpose of John's message is to prepare the way for Christ. But What is the character of his message? Let's jump back in in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John is traveling in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, and he's calling people calmly with very nice words to repentance. No! (laughs) 
John is a burly man in camel skin clothing roaming up and down the Jordan River yelling at people to get off the Lord's sacred lawn. But really, how in the world are we supposed to take this section? Well, let's just look at what's happening here. The crowds, they're coming. They know something is up with this John guy. He's preaching repentance, but he's also preaching that they can be forgiven. So they've come to be baptized by him. But I think there's evidence here in this passage to say that maybe they aren't totally getting the point. Note that earlier Luke says that it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's not simply a baptism for forgiveness of sins. And here we see that many came to be baptized by him, but his response to them is harsh. Not that it just seems to be harsh, but it's actually harsh. Maybe even brutal by most of our standards today. He calls them a brood of vipers, so literally like a slithering pit of baby snakes. They're an offspring of vipers. The word here means generation or fruit. That's what brood means. This is really interesting because fruit, it's a theme here in what he's saying to the people. He calls them to bear fruits in keeping with repentance And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. By his call to bear the fruit of repentance, we can assume that they are not indeed bearing that fruit. They must be bearing a different kind of fruit. And because of the lack of their repentant fruit, John says, you don't even bear the fruit of repentance, and you expect that you yourselves can be called fruit of Abraham? He continues his attack by noting that every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You have to understand the level of scandal that this would be. John is essentially saying that their very identity that they assume is mostly bound by their blood lineage to Abraham is actually bound by a condition of the heart. And we see this confirmed later in Galatians 3, 7, where Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So John is actually right in line with Scripture here when he notes that crying, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, means nothing. It is those who have faith, a faith that bears the fruit of repentance, that are truly the sons of Abraham. And he says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. So the character of John's message is not what we might expect. You might expect that the one preparing the way for baby Jesus, weak and quiet, would tone things down a bit. But that's not the character we see in John's message. And we'll find as we go through the Gospel of Luke that that's not the character of Christ's Gospel. It may not be as weak as we thought. In fact, the very character of the message leads us and John's audience to our next point. Repentance through John's message. The people, they're rightly alarmed by John's message. He's taken the very core of what it means to be Jewish and aggressively shaken it. Not only that, but this is happening in the midst of an increasing loss of identity for the Jews and the constant threat of losing their nation completely. You'd think in a world that is so unhinged for the people of God that the thing to do would be to seek to rattle the fewest cages possible and preach a message of comfort and easy forgiveness, right? 
Apparently not. But the question is, how do people respond to this message? The people run away from him, right? Wrong. The people seek repentance. And not just something that's generic here, not just forgiveness because they want to escape the wrath to come, but right repentance. Look in verse 10 what happens. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered to them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. So we've got three different groups here. We have the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers. And John addresses them differently. That's the thing about repentance. It bears fruit, and that fruit is specific. The fruit of repentance isn't a generic action. It's a process of all these specific ways in which we turn away from something sinful. So the things that I must repent of are different from the things that you must repent of. The crowds needed to bear the fruit of repentance by sharing what they had. The tax collectors needed to work honestly and only collect what was owed them. The soldiers needed to be content and stop using their physical might for personal gain or coercion of others. So we see repentance looks different for different people. The fruit of it does. And not only this, but repentance looks like something. Let me say that again. Repentance looks like something. It's not just a heart thing. It has fruit. And I know I'm belaboring this point, but I think we miss it often. That might be stopping something. But what what is the opposite direction of sin but God himself? And turning to God looks like something. There's action involved. That something might be different in different situations. It might be giving that second tunic or half your groceries to someone in need. It might look like honest work where you used to give minimal effort. It might even look like using your physical prowess, your intellectual prowess, or your hard-earned skills for the good of others. So just as a side note here, if you're feeling lost about what direction to go in your life, what God may be calling you to do, if you're wondering what good works he set aside for you, you might just need to turn around. They might be sitting on the other side of repentance. Listen, so often we cry out for direction from God. Say, God, I'm at a loss and I just don't know what to do. I hate my job. Work is terrible. The culture is awful. But I just don't know if I should leave or not. But on the other side of this, we complete only the bare minimum in order to make it by. Repent. Maybe God is keeping you there because you haven't learned contentment. Or, are you ready for this? Maybe you're the one who made your workplace toxic. You did it with your bad attitude, but you're too blind to it, and no one wants to talk to you about it. I know that sounds harsh, but I'm just trying to do a little preparing the way here like John. Another example. Lord, I don't know what to do. My kids are so grumpy. 
They're disobedient. They're ungrateful. They've always got a problem. They're always fighting over insignificant little things. It's exhausting. Well, where did they learn to be that way? Oh, but kids don't have to learn to be sinful, Coleman. Believe me, I know that from personal experience of my own kids and being a child. (laughs) But what are you doing to help them combat their sin? Are you raising them up in the fear of the Lord? Are you exercising discipline in the way the Lord does with you? Hebrews 12 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines, listen, the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, listen, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So maybe the loving and well-ordered home you are praying for is on the other side of your own contentment your own lack of quarreling, your own willingness to follow the model of God the Father and discipline your children. Because get this, the Bible says that it's not a glut of excuses that show that a child is love, it's actually discipline. And why is that? Well, to bring us all the way back to John's message, it's because discipline drives repentance. And repentance is necessary. We might not like the fact that it takes true confrontation by someone like John about the sin in our hearts in order to turn away from it. We might not like being called a brood of vipers, a liar, a cheat, lazy, adulterer, sodomite, or even just a bad dad. But if it's true, then it's necessary to hear in order to repent. So now we've seen repentance through John's message. But what's the heart behind it? Our passage continues, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And we're going to stop there. So the people are in expectation. They know that Messiah, the Christ, is coming. They're itching for it in their bones. They've just heard this man lay their whole world at their feet and call them to repentance, and they're completely gobsmacked. So they think, this has to be him. Surely this John, he's the Christ, isn't he? But in verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, this strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And just when these people think that they've gotten on the other side of this fiery sermon, John goes right back in. All of these things, this repentance and forgiveness thing that John has been preaching, this is nothing compared to what Christ will do. Oh yes, Christ calls to repentance. He offers forgiveness to those whom he calls, but he baptizes not with water like John, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
And just like that fruit motif from earlier, now we pick up on fire. What does this mean that he baptizes with fire? Well, in verse 9, every tree that does not bear good fruit is thrown into the fire. And here in verse 17, we have this image of Christ with a winnowing fork and clearing a threshing floor. Some of you may know this, but if you've ever harvested wheat, there's this process where you have to separate the wheat, the grain that you actually use for food, from the chaff, all the bad bits that we don't eat. To do this, you have to toss the wheat. I mean, literally toss it into the air. And to do this with a winnowing fork is a fairly aggressive process. You violently toss it into the air, preferably with a breeze. And the good part of the wheat, the fruit or the grain, it will fall to the ground because it's heavy. But the chaff will be carried a distance by the breeze. So this violent and disturbing process of tossing the wheat up into the air, gathering up the wheat into the barn, this is how the fruit is collected. But what happens to the chaff? It's burned. Just like the trees that bore bad fruit, that is, fruit that is not in keeping with repentance. So John says he's not the Messiah. And John couldn't be the Messiah. He's not even worthy to untie the sandals of this Christ to come. Instead, he is to prepare the way. Only Jesus Christ can hold the winnowing fork because he is the only one qualified to judge. The fire of his judgment requires perfect understanding and perfect truth. It requires not simply the word of God in the desert, the message, it requires the word of God incarnate, the logos. That is the very source of truth itself. Only he can judge rightly because only he is ultimately right. And John is declaring that he is coming. The gospel of Christ's kingdom is not simply about repentance. That's not at all what, that's, that's not all that we need. We can turn away from a thing, but our turning away from it, it doesn't cancel it out. It's not as if I can just change direction and do a bunch of good deeds and now I'm able to go to heaven. I'm not all of a sudden made right with God because I've changed directions. I have a debt of sin that I could never account for. No good deed is ever able to go above and beyond the good that is required. A good deed is good because it is what was supposed to happen. It meets the standard set by God for perfection. Anything short of that standard is sin. So even when we obey, we've met the standard but we can never go beyond it. We can never pay off our own debt by going above and beyond what's required. So repentance, it doesn't get rid of our sin. It's simply the first step in submitting ourselves to Christ as Lord. In order for our sin to be dealt with, we need someone who has met that standard of perfection, who never deserved wrath to be a substitute for our wrath. And that is exactly what Christ has done on our behalf. So repentance is good, but we must have faith to be saved. Faith in this king who purchased his kingdom by his own blood. His sacrifice purchased all of us. And we must repent and believe the gospel. So we see that the heart of John's message is Jesus Christ himself. And this brings us to the hope of John's message. What will all this bring about? Messiah is coming to his people. If you're astute, you'll note that we, 
We didn't talk about all of the quote from Isaiah earlier, so let's read it again. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Yes, he is coming with his winnowing fork. Yes, he is coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with unquenchable fire. Yes, he will rightly judge, but to what end? The valleys will be filled, the mountains made low, the crooked straight, the rough places level, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is a gospel, folks. This is good news. Christ Jesus is redeeming everything. See, the Jews, they were looking for a Jewish Messiah for the Jews. Someone who would break the yoke of Rome for them. But they had lost their view of the end of the promise of Abraham. God never meant to bless only the physical descendants of Abraham, but rather that the descendants of Abraham by faith would be a blessing to all nations, all flesh, all peoples, that they would one day be made one in Christ. Back to Galatians 3, but let's read beyond verse 7 this time. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, and the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And here's the irony of it all. Jesus did become the Messiah that they expected, but not in the way they expected. In one sense, they wanted a king who would lead them in a rebellion against Rome and get independence for them. They didn't get that, but in another sense, Christ did exactly that. Because they rejected Christ and had him killed on a Roman cross, Christ Jesus conquered death. He rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father and now rules everything. Through his death, <clears throat> through his death, he got it all, including Judea, Rome, the whole Mediterranean, the whole continent, the whole world, all the way to every galaxy in the universe. Jesus is king over all of it now. There's not a square inch in all of creation over which Jesus does not say, mine. And those who are joined with him by faith are given an inheritance as co-heirs with him in that kingdom. John the Baptist understood this clearly. He knew what was going on. He knew that Christ had come. And this whole eternal kingdom thing was popping off like a bottle of bubbly at a New Year's celebration. In verse 18, it says, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And this phrase, he preached good news, it's actually really interesting. It's kind of an odd phrase in the Greek, if, especially if you don't understand the context. In English, we actually substitute some words here to get at what this idea means. But now we're so far removed from that culture that maybe we don't really know where those words come from. The phrase here literally means he was 
gospeling the people. It takes this word gospel, which is a Roman word for the declaration of your new membership in the kingdom of Caesar, the son of God, and it uses it as a verb. John is doing that gospel thing to the people, you might say. But this is not the gospel of Caesar Augustus or Tiberius or any other for that matter. This is the true good news about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's certainly not less than Caesar's gospel. Caesar conquers. He makes the nations his own. He receives their worship and submission, but he does so under a false peace. King Jesus conquers. He makes the nations his own. He receives their worship as the true son of the true God. And he does so in true peace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is far better than any gospel this world has to offer or ever will offer. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So we see the hope of John's message in this totalizing gospel of peace through Jesus Christ. But there are those who will not believe. Those who will reject the truth. Those who will live in rebellion to the true King Jesus. We read now the end of John's work in the wilderness and those who will reject his message. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, he added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Herod had taken his brother's wife as his own, and John, as a good Christian, should He kept his mouth shut and stayed out of politics and let the sinful Herod live his life in peace because we shouldn't mix religion and politics, right? The end? No. John reproved Herod. He knew it was wrong. John also knew the role that this tetrarch would play among the Jews. Herod's failure of morals is not only improper as a leader, but it's an indicator of the corruption of the leaders and of that day, and it's a, repu- it's a public rejection of God's revealed word. So John correctly addresses Herod and his sinful behavior because, listen, it's actually right and good for Christians to confront the world about sin. What John is doing here with Herod is no different than the others, the other groups that he had confronted before. He's addressing sin and calling to repentance. Why? Because repentance precedes forgiveness. It is a required ingredient in our continual submission to King Jesus. This is actually a great kindness that John is doing to Herod. Without faith and the fruit of repentance, Herod will be burned with all the rest of the chaff by the unquenching unquenching fire of the king who holds the winnowing fork. And when Christians call others to repentance... It is a great kindness and labor of love to them as well, but it comes at a cost. Luke notes that Herod does other evil things, but what does Herod do in response to the ministry and message of John the Baptist? Well, there is a man in the wilderness who is causing problems for him personally, and now he's talking kingdom talk, and doesn't he know that that kind of talk could lead to some really bad things? Maybe even a rebellion. What about this potential of a new king? These are all very scary ideas for a fake king with a time-bound kingdom. 
What might Rome think if this thing gets any traction? Well, that seems like a great opportunity to put a hurt on this guy, John. So Herod does just that. He locks John in prison. The phrase here is literally, shut up John in prison, which I think is a wonderful little way to think about it all. John has a message, and it's a gospel that Herod, the rulers of Rome and the rulers of the Jews, they don't want to hear. The gospel of Christ's kingdom means that they could lose everything. So what do you do when you don't want to hear something? You shut it up. But here's the kicker, and it's a bit of a spoiler. They do this, and eventually John is killed. And when the one who is greater comes along, Jesus the Messiah, they do the same thing to him. This time, to even greater shame through a crucifixion and everything. But unlike John, John's cousin from Nazareth, the word incarnate, he won't stay dead. Here's the point of all of this, and it's our sermon in the sentence today. You can shut up the message, but you can never shut up the word. Luke shows us again in Acts chapter 4, when the apostles healed a lame man in the last chapter while proclaiming Christ as Savior. They were brought before this council, in fact, by the very high priest from our passage today, Annas and Caiaphas. The apostles were questioned about who they were proclaiming and doing miracles on behalf of. What is their gospel? And hear the apostles' response. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, man, that hits real hard when you know that they were the people, right? Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And listen, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. As if to say, you rejected the king in favor of Caesar, but Caesar cannot save you. Only Christ can. You made the wrong choice. The council is furious with them and wishing them dead. They continue in verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they, confronted, or they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a noble sign has been performed, a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that they may spread, that it may spread no further among the people, let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. See, the gospel of the kingdom of God, it cannot be stopped. You can shut up the message, but you can never shut up the word. You cannot stop King Jesus, the word made flesh. You cannot stop his kingdom. Do not reject him today. As we've seen in this last part of this passage, many tried. It doesn't work out well. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you.